good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name's Clay Holland. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King, and I'm glad that you are here. I do want to let you know, if you haven't been here in a good long while, or if you're new, we will be taking communion after the sermon. And if you want to uh, partake, the communion elements are in the um, narthex, right outside of these doors on the table to my right and your left. And so if you get up uh, during the sermon to go get communion elements, it will not offend me if you find yourself in a boring part of the sermon. Um, you know, it, it, it's fine. I just don't want anybody to miss out because you don't know our our current procedure on that. So um, you're welcome to grab those at any point. And if you have a Bible or you want to turn on your phone or your iPad or whatever, we're in Mark chapter 12. And it seems like we've been in Mark chapter 12 for a while. We have. We're coming to the end of it. Mark chapter 12, Jesus, all of these scenes take place in the week that we now call Holy Week. This is the week that is between Palm Sunday, uh, the time that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and what we call Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross, and then that preceded, of course, Easter Sunday, the day that he rose again on the third day. That week is characterized by a lot of teaching and a lot of controversy. Uh, controversy particularly with the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we had seen three scenes prior to this where he was in conflict with the religious leaders. Now he's in the temple and he is teaching. And it is the uh, content of that teaching in the temple that is important for us as we proceed forward. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12 starting in verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray uh, that we would see our Savior who gave us all that he had, his very life. And in knowing that and in abiding in him, we would trust in him and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. If you're old enough or you remember, these were the words of Woody Allen when he was being uh, interviewed by a reporter in 2001. And what he was talking about in that quote was the time in 1992 when he ended a 12-year relationship with the actress Mia Farrow because he was having an affair with Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. Uh, her name was Soon Yi Previn. At the time, Previn was 22 years old, 
and Woody Allen was 56, and they ended up getting married in 1997. Mia Farrow was completely and utterly devastated and crushed by Woody Allen's betrayal of her. Woody Allen, not so much. Woody Allen was basically like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I fell in love. What am I supposed to do? You know, what are you going to do? Now, when Woody Allen uttered these words, he was using them to justify a horrific betrayal and breach of trust. And the logic that Woody Allen was saying in this quote, you know, the heart wants what it wants, you fall in love, I mean, that's that. He's basically saying, look, I have no control. I have no moral agency here, you know. It's just, you know, what your heart wants, you pursue. It's as simple as that. Now, I think most of us here know that life is not actually that simple. If you're a parent or you've been a parent, you also know that you have spent much of your energy trying to convince your children not to simply follow the whims of their hearts every time they have one. But nonetheless, there are some profundities in this quote. Some people actually utter profound things even when they're not meaning to. And this is one of those times. Because no matter the fact that Woody Allen spoke these words to justify abhorrent, terrible behavior, they're nonetheless true words. The heart wants what it wants. This is actually true. Theologians talk about this a a, a lot. Theologians talk about human beings acting, living their lives in accordance with their nature. We live according to our nature. So if our hearts are unredeemed by God, if our hearts are dead in sin, then our hearts are going to desire those things that are apart from God's will for us. We're going to pursue a course of what we believe is going to make us happy and find meaning in this life, even if those things are contrary to God's will. Why? Because our hearts are set against God. They're still dead in sin. Our hearts are going to want what they want. On the other hand, if God by his redeeming power has taken your heart of stone and he's replaced it with a heart of flesh, if you come to Christ in faith and your heart has been transformed, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you and continuously transforms you to desire what God desires. And so we begin to live, never perfectly, but we begin to live progressively by God's grace according to our redeemed state. And our heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. And what our hearts want then is a good diagnostic. If you actually sit and meditate on what are the greatest desires of my heart? What is it that I most long for in this world? What do I spend all of my energy pursuing and leaning into? It's a, it's a, it's a diagnostic tool with respect to your relationship with God. Do we share his desires for our lives or do we simply pursue our own desires in this life? No matter where those desires take us with respect to the standards of a holy God. Now this is obviously a more difficult question than it seems. But it's a good question for us all to meditate upon. And in 1998 when I was in seminary I read a book by a guy called Greg Gay. He wrote a book called The Way of the Modern World. The subtitle of this book was Why It is Tempting to Live as if God Does Not Exist. It's a mouthful of a title, but it's pretty descriptive uh, with respect to what the book's about. Uh, Craig Gay's thesis 
is that the most is that most professing believers, people that claim to be uh, followers of Jesus, actually live our lives as what he calls practical atheists. That is that we confess our belief in God with our mouths, but we end up living our lives in many ways as if God doesn't exist, as if God is not involved in the day-to-day details or really has meaning to do in the details of our lives. I'm, I'm not really talking about here, he's not really talking about here of like, you know, the, the hypocrite with a, with a capital H, you know, like using religion to fleece people out of their life savings or railing against a, a certain category of sexual sin and then getting caught having conducted multiple extramarital affairs. This happens, these kinds of things happen way too often to the detriment of the cause of Christ in the world. That is actually true. But Gay's talking more about subtle and less overt ways that we live our lives as if God isn't real, as if he's not active in our lives, like saying on a Sunday morning that we trust God to take care of us, but then living the rest of the week in a complete and utter state of panic and anxiety, that, we're, that, that everything is going to come crumbling down, that I don't have enough, that I have to protect everything with every inch of power that I have, those kinds of things. But one of the most important lessons that the Bible teaches us is that God is worthy of our trust at all times. Big and small, he is worthy of our trust. And that the redeemed heart trusts God. The redeemed heart trusts God. And that's what we actually see in this passage because what Jesus is doing in his teaching about the scribes and then as it flows into uh, this example of the poor widow, he is creating a juxtaposition between two hearts, a heart devoted to self and a heart devoted to God. And we can learn both internally, you know, what what makes those hearts tick and externally what behaviors are manifested out of those hearts, a lot of lessons for our lives. So first, a heart devoted to self. If the heart wants what it wants and the heart that is not set upon Jesus is naturally and logically going to be set upon the self and our own desires. Uh, that's just a, that is just the way that we are as human beings. If our hearts are not redeemed by God, we're going to be thinking about our own, uh, our own lives and what we believe and perceive is our own good. Now, the scene in Mark chapter 12 has shifted from our last three sermons. In our last three sermons, all of those dealt with particular conflicts that Jesus was having with, uh, with religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and a lot of those conflicts were meant to trap Jesus in his words and to ultimately destroy him. So in verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap Jesus with a political question. In verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with a theological question. And then in verses 28 through 34, one solitary scribe came to Jesus and asked him an earnest legal question. So the last conversation Jesus had was with a scribe. And then starting in verse 35, we find Jesus teaching in the temple and the scribes happen to be the people that he is teaching about. In verse 38, he turns his attention to the scribes as a group, as a class of people. And we find a much different tone in Jesus' words here than we did with the scribe who came to ask him a question about God's law. 
in verse 28. And this is what Jesus says. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What we see here are two values of a heart, of a heart that, is self, uh, that is set towards self. And we see two outward consequences of hearts that are set toward self. The values associated with a heart devoted to the self are pride and glory. Pride and glory. First, pride. Look again at verse 38. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. Now the context here is that the scribes in Jerusalem wore clothing that set them apart not simply for their vocational purposes like a priest would wear a collar or something like that but also it designated where they stood on the social hierarchy. When a scribe walked by in a crowd, it was immediately obvious that they were a scribe. It was immediately obvious where they stood in the social pecking order. And he made sure that everyone acknowledged that standing by greeting him, showing him deference in the marketplace. He dressed in a way not only that served a vocational purpose or, 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 or served the purpose of having a sense of kind of aesthetic beauty, but, a, but, but the scribe would dress in a way that communicated his exalted position and highlighted everyone else's position below him. That was the point of pride. Second, glory. Look at verse 39. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. You see, it's not simply the circumstance of having a place of prominence. It's liking it. That's the disposition of the heart, not an external circumstance. They want that. They, in some senses, even need that. It's finding satisfaction in one's prominence and comparing that prominence to others and liking it. That's the issue. So you see, it's not simply a matter of circumstance, but it's a matter of what's inside the heart that matters. So pride and glory are the inward values that are associated with a heart that is devoted to self. So what are some of the outward manifestations of those inward values? There are two. The first is cruelty. Cruelty. Verse 39. These scribes who walk around in long robes that want to be outwardly respected, that want to be greeted in the marketplaces and have these seats of honor, what do they do outwardly? They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. Now, it's no coincidence here that Jesus brings up injustice towards widows and then points to a widow in the next scene that we're going to see as an act of faithfulness. He's directly contrasting the scribes who want to be respected on the outside but are rotting away on the inside at the level of their hearts with the result that they will do the most despicable thing that they can possibly do when they believe that no one is looking, which is to defraud a widow and to deprive her and to defraud her out of her home 
and out of her possessions. Remember that widows and orphans were the two most vulnerable populations of people in the ancient world. A widow in the ancient world whose husband died, who would normally leave his possessions to his oldest son, uh, couldn't just go out and get a job and take care of herself. An orphan whose parents died had no way of supporting himself, no way of supporting herself. They were subject and they were vulnerable to starvation and to death If the community did not rally around them and care for them. And who is supposed to lead the community of God's people to care for the widows and the orphans? The leaders are. And who are the leaders? The scribes are the leaders. Outwardly they may pay lip service to caring for the widows and the orphans. But when they have the chance, when they think that nobody is looking, they'll destroy them. Cruelty that is self-focused that often manifests itself in greed, very often results when one is focused only on himself or only on herself and they're perceived thriving in the world and they just need to do what they need to do to thrive in the world. That's the first, cruelty. The second outward manifestation is pretense. Again, verse 39, for a pretense they make long prayers. Now again, there's nothing wrong with long prayers. There are, uh, there are lots of times when making a long prayer is, is, is very appropriate and even necessary. You know, falling down before the Lord, uh, you know, kneeling down before the Lord, pouring out your heart to Him. For a long, there are times that I think that people have, have prayed and prayed and prayed. They don't even know how long it was because they were simply trying to connect to the Lord and get their cares and cast all of their burdens on them. It's not the fact of a long prayer. It's the purpose of a long prayer. For a pretense, they make long prayers. It shows you exactly who the audience is. The audience is not God. The audience of that long prayer is whoever is there standing around to hear it. Now I'll tell you, and you know this, that pride and glory and cruelty and pretense was not only a problem in first century Jerusalem. In fact, it continues to be a perfectly reasonable and actually truthful stumbling block for why so many people in our own culture refuse to gain to, to come to Jesus. They refuse to be the God that they refuse to believe that the gospel can be true. And sometimes it's simply because of pride and glory, glory and cruelty and pretense. When a Christian leader, when a televangelist, late at night, when the people that are up watching TV late at night are very often widows who are lonely and sad, and they are watching their TV, when that televangelist says, look, if you will just sow a seed to me, to me and my ministry, if you just give me what you have, then you'll be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. When that happens, and you see that, Jesus' words to the scribes in Mark chapter 12 should come to your mind. When a Christian leader carefully cultivates an image of outward piety and faithfulness only to be discovered to be abusive and greedy and sexually immoral, Jesus' condemnation to the scribes in Mark chapter 12 should come to your mind. But you know, we struggle here as well. We're always going to struggle. 
we're always going to fail. It's not the point. The point is this. Are you only creating an outward facade for the world, or is your heart devoted to the Lord? If your heart is devoted to the Lord, you're going to fail. But are you quick to repent? Are you quick to repent both to God and to other people? It's a matter, you see, of the heart. And the transition between Jesus' word of condemnation to the scribes and the lesson of the widow's offering then is actually a smooth one. You see, the scribes made a show of their piety and their faithfulness for human eyes and human respect. This widow, however, lives for an audience of one, the Lord her God. And there we see a heart devoted to God. The scene is an outward court in the temple in Jerusalem where there are 13 chests that are set up to receive offerings. Two of those chests are for the temple tax, which is essentially an offering that every Israelite is required to make. The other 11 are for free will offerings. And they are for things, they're designated offerings, they're for things like bricks to repair the temple or gold for the temple furnishing or birds for the sacrifices in the temple. Uh, and, and, and what happens here, remember this is a week that is prior to the Passover. So this is a feast week in Jerusalem where lots of people who are coming uh, from outside of Jerusalem are coming to the city to celebrate the Passover. They make their once a year gift at this time. And so what Jesus does, and this is, this is hilarious to me, Jesus sets up a chair right by, those, uh, right by those offerings. He's just sitting there watching people make their offerings, right? It's like me putting a chair back there at that little offering basket and just sitting there and kind of watching what happens, you know, uh, you know and, and nodding my head. Very interesting gift you gave there, you know? And, and so what, what is happening here is because these are once yearly uh, free will offerings is that people, particularly those who come from outside of Jerusalem, they will make a big show of their offering to the Lord. They'll make a big show of their act of devotion in this offering. It comes with a lot of outward um, pomp and circumstance. Now, what I want you to understand here is that nowhere in this passage does Jesus condemn wealth or the wealthy. He's not making that point. He's making the point that relates to whose presence we value the most. If we value being in the presence of other people the most, and if we value having other people think highly of us the most, then we'll make sure that everybody knows what our gift is and we'll make a big deal out of it. But if we value the presence of God the most and a sincere desire to honor Him, we'll make our gifts in devotion to Him. The, the, the amount is really irrelevant the gift could be large or it could be small, depending on our means. And the point is, is what is the heart of the giver and who are we giving the gifts to? Who are we giving the gifts to be seen by? And so this widow, and remember the vulnerability of the widows and the cruelty of the scribes, this widow came to the offering box and placed in it two tiny copper coins, each one called a lepton. One lepton was the smallest currency in use at that time. Two lepta, the widow placed in the offering box in the temple, was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius. I remember from a few sermons ago, we talked about a denarius being the, the equivalent of one day's wage for the most common laborer. Now, 
let's do a little math here. And who told you that math would not be you know, valuable for you as a, as a pastor? It is. Let's put this in perspective. Minimum wage in Texas is $7.25 an hour. If someone works eight hours at minimum wage, that's $58 a day. That's your denarius, okay? That's the modern-day equivalent of a denarius uh, is $58 in Texas. So one sixty-fourth of $58 is 0.9-ish percent. Uh, so in today's terms, if someone was giving a uh, two lepta, you know, as an offering, it would still not be a bill. It would still not be a piece of paper. It would still be coins. And that would be a yearly gift, a yearly gift that didn't even equal $1. And that is what this widow put in this offering plate, not out of compulsion, but out of devotion to God and trust in him. Have you ever been to an event where someone makes a big deal about how much they give? Um, you know, like, like you can tell that ultimately what is at stake here is reputation, uh, the honor and prestige that comes with a philanthropic gift and not the gift itself. I, I think Houston is a better town than some for that. People who study these things tell you that Houston is one of the most philanthropic cities in the entire nation. One of the things that I really like about living in Houston is that there are a lot of people who are very generous and give really, really big gifts for no notice whatsoever, for no recognition or glory. Their only hope is that there's a positive impact I like that about living in Houston. But think about this for just a second. Do you know what one of the most lasting and impactful charitable gifts that has ever been given in the history of the world is? What is, what is, what is one of the most impactful gifts that has ever been given? Well, let's think about it this way. You could give multi-millions of dollars to build a new wing onto MD Anderson Cancer Center. I'd be for it. I would definitely for it do that. But you know what? That won't last the 2,000 plus years that these two lepta that this widow put into that offering plate in Jerusalem has already lasted. That gift of that widow is going to be impacting people until Jesus comes back because he speaks about her because it is written down in, the, in, in his word. It has been impacting the hearts of people for 2,000 years. The smallest of gifts. Do you know what God can do with the smallest of gifts? It doesn't really matter the size. It only matters that it's in his hands for him to do his will with it. And what allowed her to make that gift? It had to be trust. It could only possibly be trust. Trust lies at the center of a heart devoted to God. Who is it that ultimately cares for you? God does. What could possibly allow a widow to place the only two lepta that she had to live on as an offering to God? Trust that God would care for him, for her. So what could possibly give you the courage to be open-handed and generous with the resources that you possess? It can only be a recognition that those resources come from God and it is God's job to take care of you. 
And the more tightly that you place a death grip on those things, the more your heart convinces you that they actually belong to you, that you have to have them, that you even have to have more of them, the more our heart is led away from devotion to God because the more we begin to rely on ourselves to meet all of our needs. The widow reminds us of that devotion to God every single time we read this passage. So why is it ultimately safe to be open-handed? To be open-handed in a way where you gain no affirmation from people, but simply out of love and devotion to God. It's because Jesus knows exactly what it means to give everything. He gave even more than this widow gave. He gave his very life. He gave literally all that he had to live on, on the cross. And because he gave his life, we actually have very little of ultimate worth to lose in this life. We have very little of ultimate ultimate worth to lose by being radically generous. Even in a time of pandemic, even in a time of political uncertainty, even in a time of economic uncertainty, even in a time of social unrest, the fact remains, Jesus paid it all. And our lives on this earth are the blink of an eye, the snap of a finger. But your life with Christ lasts for eternity. So the question for us is this, where is your heart? Where's your heart? Does it lie here in this world and the things of this earth? Or does it lie with Christ by grace through faith in his kingdom and eternity where you will have all that you could ever want and more and it will never be taken away from you because Jesus Christ actually gave it all. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for that great gift that you gave that we might have life, abundant life now and eternal life with you. We pray that we would lean into it and live into it, even this week, uh, by your grace and your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And now the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We give you thanks and praise, O God, that you sent your only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life with you. We thank you also that you both remind us of that fact and you nourish us in that fact when we come to your table by faith. Feed us, O God, by your grace that we might live with hearts devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat now of the bread of Christ that is given for you.
And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we do show forth our Lord's death until he comes again. Drink now at the invitation of your Savior of his blood. Let's pray together. Thank you for meeting with us, dear Savior. Thank you for feeding us at your table. Now you send us into your world. We pray that as you promise, you would go with us, that we would represent you in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.